say that too, it's church, right? Hey, for those, um, I see a lot of familiar faces. For those of you who might not know uh, who I am, my name's Sean Sikama, my wife Diane over here. And I, we run a ministry along East Colfax, uh, mostly in Aurora, called Jesus on uh, Colfax Ministries. I know some of you follow that. I'm going to weave uh, into the scripture this morning some of our journey from a big church out in the suburbs, uh, Eastern Hills Community Church, to, uh, I, I tell people, I used to hang out like with, my friends were business guys and computer people and lawyers, and now I hang out with the mentally ill and prostitutes and drug dealers. Some, some people respond to that and say, oh, too bad for you. I'm like, no, I got a promotion. You don't understand, you know. It's a beautiful life. If you have a Bible, we're going to be in Mark chapter 1 today. Mark chapter 1. Um, also, there is a little bio in the back page of the bulletin that has, because I'm going to forget about this otherwise, information about our website. And um, I write pretty regularly. I blog, working on turning that into a book. So if you want to know some of the stories of the street, You'll get them there, but you'll hear a few of them today as well. Mark chapter 1. Um, I think the slides are actually going to start at 16, but I'm going to begin at verse 14. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Just about four years ago now, um, I, for the very first time in my life, set foot on one of the old motels along East Colfax. In fact, we got a picture of it here. This is the, uh, the Pace Setter Motel. Now, let me just give you a really quick context. I'm going to guess, most of you know at least a little bit about Colfax. Is that a safe guess? Uh, 26 miles long, really, in a lot of ways, the roughest part of the city. Um, uh, Colfax Avenue is Highway 40. And before um, I-70 was built, it was a major cross-country thoroughfare. So if you drove from the East Coast to the West Coast, you'd pro and you saw, stopped to see the sights in Denver, you would have stayed in one of these old motels along East Colfax, family-friendly places. Well, I-70 got built, a whole bunch of other things happened, and Colfax, and particularly our side, which is mostly the Aurora side, a little bit of Denver, descended into really horrific poverty. Um, a poverty that exists to this day, and, and before I forget this, part of the proof of that is we uh, as a ministry have been able to buy two buildings on Colfax. One of the buildings built in 1968 has had nothing in it for 30 years. It's just sat there vacant. Uh, when I met the realtor who was listing it, I said to him, that's because God's been saving it for me. <laughs> he said, hey, as long as you buy it, I don't care what you believe. So, <laughs> so um. So December 2015, six months earlier, I had stepped down from my position at Eastern Hills Community Church where I'd served almost 26 years, had a year sabbatical, time to figure out what we were going to do next, and uh, uh, we were out with Mean Street Ministry. Um, Eastern Hills had partnered with them, and it was a, a week or so before Christmas, and so uh, we were coming to the motels, Mean Streets worked in the motels, to bring Christmas cheer, gifts for the kids, 
hot chocolate, Christmas carols. And there was a group of probably about 40 or 50 youth group kids from Eastern Hills who were there. And, and I parked my car towards the front. And you can kind of see it's uh, two, low, two low buildings on each side. And I walked down to the back where the truck was with all of the stuff. And, and um, doors opened. And I saw um, I'd had experience with poverty previously. Um, but I'd been away from, for a long time. And I saw the face of poverty. I saw it in uh, the combination of what people wore and didn't wear, uh, faces I saw that were clearly struggling with mental health issues, people who looked high. And I'm, I'm kind of walking down, and I noticed just on the left side that there's a cop car parked in front of one of the doors, and there's a crime scene tape over the doors. Now, I'm, I'm not like a CSI guy, but I, even I know that that's a bad sign. We go to the back, and um, we're, we're kind of standing around. I'm greeting some people I haven't seen in several months from the church, and, uh, and, and frankly, I'm, I'm feeling a little uncomfortable. I found it was easier to talk to the people I knew than the people who lived in the motels. <laughs> Word filtered down. Um, there was a woman in the room with the crime scene tape who had been um, raped and beaten to death, and the body was still in the room. Mom with three kids. Well, you know, kind of a, a jolt from that, and I'm thinking, like, this is not TV. I mean, this is about 40 feet away from where I'm standing, and the body is still there. And a little later in the evening, we went up there and uh, had a little candlelight vigil around the thing. And, um, you know, people look for a pastor in moments like that, and, and truthfully, I didn't know how to act. I was so out of my element. Thankfully, a buddy of mine, Pastor Dave, longtime street pastor, he knew how to kind of pray and love people in that moment. And you know, I went, I drove, um, we, we now live about two-thirds of the time in one of these motels, but we, we weren't at that point. I drove home to my nice home in the suburbs that night, and I was shook up. It was bothering enough that either the next day or the day after, I, I thought, man, this is a lady with three kids, and I've got to find out what happened. And so I go back to the motels and I, to the motel and I, I talk to the manager. The manager doesn't know anything. I knock on all of the doors around uh, the room where she was staying. Nobody knew anything. I tried Google. <laughs> Google had a little mention that a murder had occurred, but it had no information. And I, for the life of me, could not find anything out about this woman who'd been raped and beaten and left in a motel room. And I learned one of my first lessons on East Colfax, and it is this. People come and people go, and I'm not going to say it the way I want to say it, because you shouldn't use language like this in church. People come and people go, people live and people die, and nobody gives a hoot. Nobody cares. Went away after trying to find out some information. We were in the process of discerning what God was going to have us do. And, and um, I, I went away and I, I, somewhere inside of myself I thought, well, maybe I could care. Maybe Diane could come with me. Maybe we could care. Maybe we could learn somebody's name and maybe we could even have funerals for people. A lot of our friends, when they die, there's no funeral. A lot of them have nobody. One, you'll see a picture a little later. One, a friend of ours, we didn't know him real well. He stayed to himself, died in his motel room, died of AIDS. They found the body about three or four days after uh, he died. 
Um, I don't even know what they did with the body. We did, a little, we did a little vigil around his room a little while later, but we descended into a world, the very, I, I tell people, you know, um, years ago, the big deal was the, the 1%, the top 1% of our society. Um, I tell people um, our world is filled with the bottom 1%. The motels are filled with people struggling with mental illness. They're filled with people struggling with addiction. People who are just desperately poor, poor in a way I never understood. Uh, prostitution, drug dealers. You know, and from that night, uh, um, I, I kind of, that's, that's just about four years ago now, and, I, you know, and now our life is filled with our, our friends, our beautiful friends who struggle with, we have a couple people from our team here today as well, who struggle with all manner of things. And we, we walk in and out of the middle sometimes of drug deals and uh, prostitution, um, sometimes walk in on prostitutes. We hang out with a lot of people for whom life is really, really difficult. We live in a ratty old motel on East Colfax Avenue. And some days I say to myself, how the dickens did I get here? And here's the answer. Diane and I followed Jesus. He kind of said. Now I'm going to tell you more about our story in a bit, but I, I want to ask you a question this morning. Ours is a pretty dramatic story. Yours doesn't have to be. If I had to guess, every one of us in this room this morning, there is something that Jesus is calling us to. There is some place he's saying, come Follow me. And some of us, we know the voice and we're scared to death. We don't want to do it. I want you to think about that. Because the story is really, and, and I want to tell our story this morning, but I want to weave it around the truth of the scripture. Because I want to think about the story of the disciples. So th this, is the, this is Jesus calling, this is the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. He begins proclaiming the good news in Galilee. And he calls the first four disciples, Simon, Andrew, James, and John, two sets of brothers. And it just goes like this. Um, Simon and Andrew are, are working with their nets by the side of the lake. And Jesus comes up to them and says, come follow me. And they drop their nets and they follow him. And then they go to where James and John are in the boat with their father Zebedee and the hired men. He obviously had a thriving little business, right? And he calls them and James and John clamber out of the boat and they come and they follow Jesus. Now, it's really interesting. I, I want to clear up one misconception. We, we sometimes think that this is like the first time Jesus saw these dudes. You know, he just shows up to these two guys and says, come follow me. And they're like, must follow Jesus, you know? Uh, Jesus does work that way sometimes, but not often. Uh, by the way, I read a statistic once that says the average person who comes to faith in Jesus has heard the gospel seven times before they say yes. These guys knew Jesus. You have to read this in the context of John chapter 1. They were probably followers of John the Baptist, and in John 1, Jesus shows up, he gets baptized, and what happens is John the Baptist starts pointing to Jesus. And so one day, Jesus walks by and John the Baptist turns and says to a couple of his disciples, one of them being Andrew, he says, behold the Lamb of God. And what happens is Andrew and whoever the other guy is, nobody knows for sure, they, they start following behind Jesus. And it's, it's really, it's kind of interesting. Jesus looks back at him and he says, uh, tone's important, right? He says, what do you guys want? Now he'd never met him, right? What, what do you guys want? Or, do you, or did he say, what do you guys want? And they say, isn't this a profound answer? Um, 
where are you staying? <laughs> uh, they're seekers, right? They wouldn't be following John the Baptist if they weren't hungry for something more than their life as fishermen. They're seekers, and what they want to say is, if John the Baptist says you're the real deal, we want to hang out with you, but we don't quite know how to say we want to hang out with you, so we're going to just say, where are you staying? And Jesus says, oh, come on, I'll, come on, I'll show you. And they come and they spend uh, the rest of the day with them. The next day, Andrew goes and he gets his brother Simon later to be renamed Peter. And uh, he says, Simon, I think we found the Messiah. And Simon walks up to Jesus and Jesus uh, looks at him and says, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Peter. Now here's what happened. This is what's really important about the call here. Before these guys heard the call of Jesus to follow into ministry, they felt the penetrating love of Jesus. And they saw Jesus look into their eyes and Jesus read everything about him. The whole renaming of Peter's really important. Peter means rock. Uh, Peter was nothing rock-like at all during the life he was spent with Jesus. He, he reads people. He names them. And so these guys knew Jesus. And they knew what it meant to be loved by Jesus, and they knew what it meant to begin to fall in love with Jesus themselves. And so what had happened up to this point is they had developed a trust in Jesus, and now it is go time. And so Jesus comes to him, and he, and he, he says, Simon and Andrew, come follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Um, uh, the, the newer version of the NIV changes that. I will help you reach people or something like that, uh, being careful with a gender language. And, but, you know, anybody who grew up in church, remember this one? I will make you fishers of men, fishers of men, fishers of men. I will make you fishers of men if you follow. That's enough. We can stop singing now. <laughs> And so he calls them, and um, Simon and Andrew just like, you know, it's, it's not like they say, well, uh, yeah, I guess Jesus fishing, Jesus fishing. Not that there's anything wrong with fishing. Jesus fishing. He says, come follow me. And they're like, James and John, they're like, get, get me out of this boat as fast as I can. Now they get called into an adventure. It's, Important to understand, there's a lot of language in the scripture about how we relate to Jesus. Um, Jesus is master and Lord, us as his slaves and servants. One point he said, I used to call you servants, now I call you friends. Uh, Paul says this really beautiful image in the scripture. He says, the secret revealed to us, which is Christ in us, the hope of glory. But all of this begins with us following Jesus. And so what that means is not um, me and Jesus buddy-buddy, although there's a place for that. What this means is Jesus ahead of me calling me to follow. Now, I'm going to say this about three times in the message, and this might be the most important thing you hear, so catch this now. Um, these guys' lives got turned down, upside down. From this moment, they got to watch Jesus perform miracles. They got to listen to him teach. 
They got to display their own stupidity. They got to learn how to do ministry. They got to watch Jesus die. They got to see Jesus after he came back to life. They got to build the early church um, with the exception of John out of these four because we think almost all of the disciples were martyred at the end of their life. They were taken on an adventure that took them the rest of their days. It brought excitement. It brought joy. It brought fear. It brought terror. terror. It brought sorrow. It brought suffering. And when they agreed to follow Jesus, part of what Jesus was saying to them is this, look, there is no place you will ever go in your life but that I am not in front of you. You understand that? Jesus does not send us by ourselves into anything. Always ahead of us and saying, come, follow me. Back to our story. So I, uh, I, you know, I pastored Eastern Hills for, I stepped down two weeks shy of 26 years, came to 100 people in the cafeteria middle school. We, we grew, um, got to have a kind of life in ministry that a lot of people dream of but don't get a chance to do. And it was a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful ride. But I burned out at the end. I've been going hard for a quarter of a century, preaching three, four times a weekend, big building, big budget, big staff, and burned out, had a bout of depression, and came back and actually gotten some help. I'd been wobbly for the last year, got some help, and I just always thought I'd probably serve till relatively close to retirement. We might have a late chapter in ministry, and I came back, and, and over time, it just, um, and this is its own complicated story, but I think when I came back, uh, the leadership had in that time, I'm in my late 50s by this time, uh, looked at my health and kind of felt like, you know, maybe, uh, maybe it's time to start thinking about a transition plan. Uh, they didn't really talk to me about it very much, though. And um, it, it's uh, like this world here, kind of dominated by corporate culture. Guys and gals, I guess, but guys like me in the business world who build something virtually out of nothing into a successful business usually get bought out by their kids or their employees when they're 57, 58, which is what I was. And so I think in a lot of ways, the leadership, they're kind of thinking, we've got to think about a transition. By the way, I'm, I'm still waiting on my $2 million for the uh, buyout from that. It hasn't come just yet. <laughs> And finally, the leadership has said, Here, here's what we'd like you to do. We'd like to take a year to find your successor, have a year where the two of you serve side by side, and then have him step into leadership. Some of them would have liked me to be the old guy in the back of the room, honorable role for pastors and churches like that. And I just said, you know, that's fair. I don't have a problem with it. Hard to end long-term ministries for everybody. And so I just said, I've got, I got to pray about it. And so I prayed about it, and I had a couple really crisp moments where Jesus said, um, I release you from your call. You're done. You need to finish as well as you can in what was a hard situation. I have somebody else to lead that church. I have other things for you to do. And so I went back and did it. And I'm still struggling with burnout. Had a year's sabbatical at the end and kind of trying to figure out what comes next. I, I kind of figured I was done being an upfront church pastor. I uh, looked at some denominational stuff, some seminary stuff, some business stuff. Thought I could probably make a decent living just doing coaching, consulting, speaking, writing, counseling. Had, had enough of a, a, a track record in all of that. But you know, when, when uh, Diane and I finished seminary, we, we were in the inner city in Grand Rapids, uh, Michigan, and we thought we would spend our life among those trapped in urban poverty. I have no idea how we ended up in the suburbs. Back then, we just hated the suburbs. We're like, no, no, Jesus, he lives in the inner city. 
And I, I think God maybe sent us there for 30 years to teach us a little humility, remind us that he works everywhere. But no, honestly, nobody more surprised than Diane and I that we spent 30 years basically doing suburban ministry, let alone built a really big church in the suburbs. We always thought we might have a late chapter among the urban poor. About four months after I stepped down, I uh, one day was out at Southland's big open-air mall out by Eastern Hills and on my motorcycle, and I hadn't been on East Colfax in a while. Um, we knew it. We'd partnered with ministries there. And, you know, I rode my motorcycle down East Colfax, and if you come in from the east, there's about $5 billion worth of new hospitals there. And then you pass Peoria and you drop back into Old Aurora. Uh, Mexican restaurants, hair shops, pawn shops, empty buildings, and son of a gun, I'm on my motorcycle. It's a cold day, and I had this feeling like I had come home. Maybe after 30 years in a suburban wilderness, Jesus would allow us to have a final chapter in ministry where we could go back to the most broken. And so we followed Followed a step at a time, couple, <laughs> you know, interesting, couple things that uh, I felt like Jesus said to me in prayer. I don't hear voices in prayer, by the way, but I do get pretty strong impressions from Jesus. So here's one of my conversations with Jesus. He said, so, yeah, now that you're heading towards East Colfax, I, I just, I want to get clear with you, Sean, on one thing, and that's this. If you think you're going to bring me to East Colfax, I'm there already. I don't really need your help. Thank you very much. But if you'll show up and be humble, I might find something for you to do, right? Sir, yes, sir. Come humbly. The other thing he was clear about was this. Um, I was pretty clear I wasn't supposed to do, uh, I don't know, I'd call it a church in a box, church on a corner. I wasn't, supposed, I wasn't supposed to build one of those. I'm an old white guy in a community that doesn't look anything like me, and plus I, I was tired from decades of that kind of lifestyle. And Although it's kind of funny, it's like, you know, you go to a new setting and Jesus says, you know that one thing you've been doing for 30 years and a lot of people think you're pretty good at? Yeah. Yeah, you're not going to do that. Okay. Over time, um, our hearts were really drawn, because of some of the connections we had, our hearts were really drawn to people living in the motels. There's about, on our side of town, probably 20, 25 of them, and they're housing of last refuge. They're like a semi-permeable membrane down to the people who are flat out on the street. People move back and forth in that world. Um, just really an incredibly poor and broken population. And we felt like Jesus said, okay, go love those people. So we started uh, moving in that direction. It was interesting. Before uh, we were first up there, my friends would say to me, well, so, Sean, what are you going to do? And I'm like, I, you know, I don't know. We're just, we're just following the voice of Jesus, and we're waiting until he tells us what to do. And then we said, well, we really feel like we're supposed to concentrate on the, these motels. By the way, before I forget, you'll see some pictures in a bit, but um, a ratty old motel room on East Colfax Avenue costs between twelve dollars and $1,600 a month. It's awful. You can get apartments cheaper than that. A whole bunch of reasons why people can't get it. It's, it's a pretty predatory. So. But we got, when I said, well, we really feel like we're supposed to focus on this population, then a whole bunch of people who had experience in urban ministry said to me, well, what are you going to do? It took me about four of those conversations before I realized what people were saying is, what kind of a program are you going to run? You know, are you going to do job training? Are you going to do family counseling? You're going to do, I, and there's a thousand programs. They're all important. They're all valuable. And I thought, I don't, I'm usually pretty self-confident. I thought, I don't have an answer for that question. I probably should talk to Jesus about that. 
So I had another conversation with Jesus. I'm like, okay, so you steered us to this population. What are we supposed to do? And here's what I felt like he said to me. He said, show up and love people. And I'm like, and? And he said, yeah, there's pretty much not an and. Now, I think as, our, as we've grown, we'll get to some programs eventually, but the point he was making is this. The greatest gift you have as my follower in a really broken community is to show up and love people. You know, so we, we, started, we started doing that. <laughs> you know what we discovered? Everybody's deepest need is for Jesus. You know what we discovered is the deepest need beyond Jesus that the people who live in the motel have is for someone to show up and love them and treat them with dignity and respect like a human being and be their friend and not do because a lot of us are guilty of this the poor get sorry it's not politically correct to say the poor you're supposed to say those experiencing poverty but I'm a communicator and the poor is much more compelling so bear with me on that people who are poor get drive-by by people like us all the time Show up, hand out a little food, hand out some clothes, maybe even share the gospel. I believe in sharing the gospel. We see it, churches come, they'll do a night on the streets, and they'll, at the end of the night, they'll say, wow, we led three people to Jesus. You know, and I'm like, um, okay, that's great. I, I, Jesus uses that. I'm like, what's their, what are their names? Oh, is that one guy? Is that John? Um, what's your follow-up plan for him? Oh, I don't know. I guess we didn't really, didn't really think about that. Any, any chance um, any of them were drunk or high when they prayed the sinner's prayer? Oh, you know, now that you mentioned it, that one gal, she was pretty wobbly. Again, Jesus uses all of that. But what people in motel world and street level world need is not people who show up and do a few nice things and then leave. So we were convicted. Our conviction was that we needed to move into the community. We weren't ready to sell our house in Southeast Aurora. We still go back there on weekends a bit. We had a bunch of kids living there. Um, so first we thought, well, we'll buy a house just off of Colfax. Well, <clears throat> as you might guess, my income stream changed a little bit going from the senior pastor of a big wealthy church to being a missionary. So we couldn't afford to buy a house. And then we thought, well, maybe we'll look at an apartment. And one day we're in the motels and I, I blame this on my wife. Actually, she gets credit over here. Diane, Diane turns to me and she said, you know what we should do? Is we should move into one of these motels for a year and then maybe you can write a book about it and maybe we can make some money off it that will keep paying the bills, right? And I, I didn't really, you know, she said it, that this is, this is how committed she was to the idea. The next day when I brought it up to her, she had to kind of say, oh yeah, I did say that. <laughs> and she said that and I went, oh my goodness, that is the voice of Jesus. I want you to see this next picture. This is a woodcut by a uh, German guy by the name, name of, I think, I can't, I'm going to get his name wrong, so I won't even try, but it's called Christ in the Breadline. I don't know if it's uh, World War I or World War II. It's a famous lady um, in the Catholic Church, Dorth, Dorothy Day who um, uh, pioneered just incredible urban ministry, and she had a magazine, and he did this woodcut for the magazine, and it's a picture of a, either World War I or World War II soup line with Jesus in the middle of the bread line, not Jesus coming thundering, proclaiming, 
but Jesus standing among the broken. John 1.14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The phrase, Jesus made his dwelling among us, it literally in the Greek means he pitched his tent among us. And so when Jesus came to this world, he came and pitched his tent among humanity. And isn't it striking if you read the Gospels how much time Jesus spent with the poor and the lost and the broken. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And so, you know, this is our journey. And so uh, what it meant for us to pitch our tent among the poor and the broken uh, is room 36 at the Ranger Motel. Now, we're, we're, we tried to move into the worst motel up there. God blocked that. We're into one of the better ones. It's still not great, but it's been livable. We've been living in it for over three years now, about two-thirds, three-quarters of the time. I was sick as a dog for the first three or four days we were in the space. Um, a lot of these places are really filthy. I call it the motel flu. Everybody who lives in these motels, is, they're just sick and hacking and coughing all of the time. You know, something happened when we moved into the motel. Before that, we were loving people, doing good work, and driving home at night. And now we're living in the motel, and, and, and two things happen. Um, one, of the, one of the things is our, our street cred went up a long ways. Still happens one night. Uh, early on, we were living there, and I, I was getting out of my truck. We'd been in the motels that night, and it's late at night, and Deidre, a friend of ours, is, is walking by, and she, uh, we know her a long time, struggle with prostitution and addiction, and she says, what are you doing here? And I said, oh, we, we moved into room 36. And she started crying. In fact, we get that uh, once in a while, our friends will say, you, you, really, <laughs> you really live in the middle of this? And we're, it's not as heroic as it sounds, by the way. But yeah, to live among the broken, whole world opened up to us um, when we moved into the motels. Um, not only did we get street cred, and that, but it helped us to understand the community so much better. One of the things we came to understand is how utterly pervasive prostitution is in the community. I mean, it is everywhere. We see it now. I just have to drive down the street and walk down the street. It's just everywhere. I discovered it also early on, probably the first week we were there. I, I walked, there's a little liquor store a couple blocks from our building. I was going to walk down and get a bottle of wine and saw one of our friends who we knew fairly well um, standing by the side of the road and she, she had just told the story. She was waiting, she was living in a motel, waiting for her husband to get out of prison and uh, we assumed that they had some money coming in to do that and I, I walked down the road and I'm like, um, Angie? <laughs> I look at her, dressed up, makeup on her face and she looked at me and she said, what are, what are you doing here? <laughs> I, I said, oh, we, you know, we moved into the motel and um, she looked disturbed. When I came out of the store to walk the two blocks back to our room, she'd moved to the other side of the street and I, then I understood she's out turning tricks. Opened the door and next time I saw her, she was honest about it. We had a great conversation come out of it. Prostitution, by the way, we, I, man, I, we know 20, 30, 40, 20, 30, 40 prostitutes who give us a hug when they see us. A few, uh, I even have a few drug dealers who give me a hug when they see me. We have become the friends of prostitutes and drug dealers and the mentally ill, and we show up and we love people. 
And people say, well, what about church? Well, you know, one of the things we discovered is this is a population, their life is so disordered. Um, some of them have mental health issues. They could hardly, they couldn't sit in a service like this without getting up seven times to go outside and have a cigarette and calm down their agitation. For a lot of them, the idea of coming to church is really hard. A few of them can. And, and so we began to say, well, we're taking church to people who aren't, probably aren't going to come to church. And then one day, uh, somebody was kind of pushing me on the church thing. And I said, you know, son of a gun, we always offer to pray with people when we visit them. So we spend a lot of time standing in circles of two or three or four people holding hands, praying, inviting the presence of Jesus in it. And um, I know it's not all of church, but there is that passage, Jesus, is where how many of you gather in my name? Two or three. I counted one week. I said, yeah, we had 40 services last week. How many services did you have? (laughs) Room 26, room 28, room 31. And we began to find Jesus really in the middle of um, not only really broken people, um, but in places the world is forgotten. And people who are throwaway people in our society. And I, I don't, you know, I don't, um, it was kind of a painful journey to get where we are, uh, Jesus calling us to follow him, but I can't imagine what we would have missed if I just put in another 10 years being the senior pastor of a big church in the suburbs. That was great. Um, the, uh, the search firm that helped Eastern Hills find their, their new pastor said they, and they deal with all the big churches in the country, said they've never had so many hits on a website ad as they did for Eastern Hills. Great building, great location, vibrant congregation. Lots of people were lining up to take my old job. Not too many people lining up to take my new one. And we consider that a privilege. Now, uh, how am I doing, Chris? Time-wise? We okay? Okay. <laughs> I, I preached last week at, uh, I don't preach a lot anymore, but I preached last week at Hope Fellowship, what used to be 3rd CRC, and Pastor Michelle, I said, how, how long do I get? She said, oh, 20 to 25 minutes, and I'm like, are you kidding me? 20, I have this, I have a 38-minute clock in my brain, honestly, from 40 years of preaching, so um, I'll be respectful, because I, I, have, I have enough stories to keep going for hours. Um, one really quick one. I won't say the phrase because it's off color, but you'll get it. About four months ago, knock on a motel, the Radiant, in uh, Tuesday night. If we have an odd number of people, usually we go in teams of two. Uh, if it's an odd number, a lot of times I'll go by myself, knock on a door. And a guy I know, a friend of mine, uh, Jim, grew up Catholic, believer, 50-ish, typical ratty East Colfax life, answers the door. And, and he's got a vodka bottle in his hand. Hey, Sean, how you doing? I said, I'm good. And I walk in, you know, we don't, you don't move in judgment in this world at all, let me tell you. You get nowhere. I come into the room, there's a gal sitting in the corner, and um, she also has a vodka bottle in her hand. And he says, hey, um, Misty, I want you to meet Pastor Sean. And she hears the word pastor. She puts the vodka bottle on the floor. She's sitting in the corner of the room, and she looks like she wants to go through the wall. And I'm reading, I'm like, this is somebody who's been around some Christians and has not been a good experience. 
Now, Jim recognizes this, and he right away says, oh, no, 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 they're not like that. They, they just, they come here, and they love us. They don't judge us. And, and she, she kind of sits there, and after a little while, she gets this, she's got one of these hairdos, um, hair covering half of her face. I always think people are hiding, right? And she looks at me with a little smirk, and she says, you know, Christians don't like me because I ask hard questions they can't answer. And I went, with all my pastoral wisdom of 40 years, I went, Oh, and I thought, like, was she going to talk about people being sent to hell? Is she going to talk about human sexual? I mean, all these, I mean, there's lots of tough things. She said, she said, like the Trinity, for instance. I'm like, you're asking a theological question? Well, before I can answer, um, Jim jumps in, and Jim's half drunk, but Jim gives his Catholic schoolboy version of the Trinity to her. And he gets done, and I'm like, I, you know, that, that's not bad. Stone cold sober and with a theological education, I don't have a whole lot better answer than he just gave, right? And she looks at me and she says, why are you here? And Jim jumps in again. He, he, he gives our mission statement practically. They're here, they show up, they love people. And she waits a while and she, and she looks at Jim and she points at me and she says, I want him to answer that question. I look around this red hotel room and I say, well, you know, um, when Jesus was on the earth, he went to the darkest corners imaginable, the toughest lives, the most broken people, and he, he came, he did not start with judgment, he came, he showed up with love, and she said, you mean places like East Colfax? I said, yeah, and he, you know, he came to love, and I said, Hon- honestly, Misty, now by the way, I, I, I'm pretty sure she... Part of how she survived was selling her body. Uh, she's in that age range. And I said, you know, honestly, Misty, the, the only reason we come here is we think if we follow Jesus and if Jesus came to places like this, we should come here too. It's really interesting. Vodka bottles on the floor. Jim finally stopped defending me. Um, Misty's just sort of relaxed. She looks at me and she says, a little smile on her face, she says, Jesus was a cool mother. <laughs> and I did, thank you all, I did what you just did. I howled. And I said, I'm going to quote you on that. <laughs> to watch somebody in 10 minutes go from, I got to get out of here because the Jesus people are bad people, to saying, you mean Jesus really loves someone like me? That's our work. I'm going to run through some slides really quickly just so you can see it, and then I want to do, uh, this is a motel room. I love it. Warning, do not knock. The police will be called. A bunch of our friends, they have drug buddies coming up, and so they try to scare them off. Here's the guy who's on the other side of the door. He's our buddy, Leonard. Um, He's a paranoid schizophrenic who struggles with depression and um, is a severe addict. He's our friend. He's a great guy. We love him. Uh, this is our, our friend Leticia, Diane, and Leticia, we met her in the motel. She spent years on the street, too, just typical street life, beautiful person. This is, our, this is one of our, this, my, this is Willie. Diane would describe her as her bestie. She and Willie are real connected to each other. Uh, again, really colorful story. I write about her some, but uh, sweet. Actually, can you go back just real quick to that one? You can kind of see a little bit. This is what a East Colfax motel room looks like. Okay, next one. 
This is after a shooting. Um, one friend we know who shot the other friend, and we did a little bit of a candlelight vigil. It's a mix of our team and uh, some folks from the motel. Next one. Uh, this, is the, this is a balloon memorial for the guy who died of AIDS in his room, celebrating him. Next one. Uh, this is the building. I won't say a lot about it, but we have two um, buildings, 24,000 square feet on East Colfax Avenue. One of my developer friends said to me, he said, Sean, he said, that is the worst block on Colfax. I said, sweet. If Jesus were here, he'd be on the worst block of Colfax, and he's entrusted us with uh, 24,000 square feet. Some of the inside of it, we did a little work on it last week, concrete floors, you can just keep moving. This is a really, this building is really remarkable, hard to believe how beautiful it will be when it's done. One more. This is the old side of the building. Look at those old latticework arches holding up the roof. But we're, uh, we're trusting that, um, geez, I gotta raise a lot of money. If you got a spare million or two laying around, find me afterwards. Um, but we're hoping to use that as just another way of showing up and loving people in the community. I think that's the last one. Okay. Let me say this to you, and then I want to close with one story. Where is Jesus calling you to follow right now? Are you resisting? Do not be afraid of what lies ahead of you. In fact, the beauty we would have been robbed of in our life, and the friendships we would have been robbed of in our life if we'd have said, no, I had other options. I was at an age where a lot of people are kind of downshifting. Well, I'm not doing no downshifting in this life, let me tell you. Where is Jesus calling you to follow? Well, the disciples were quick. I love this about just this thing, you know. They heard the voice of Jesus. It was like they couldn't, you know, they, they couldn't drop their nets fast enough. They couldn't get out of the boats fast enough. Can you imagine Zebedee, the dad of James and John? I mean, they're, they're like goes his retirement plan. Boys, boys! St. Francis of Assisi. Uh, some of you may know his story, some of you may not. Um, he grew up the son of a wealthy businessman in the town of Assisi. He was a natural leader and a party animal. So he had a whole bunch of friends around him. But at some point, Jesus got a hold of the heart of Francis of Assisi, and he started doing really crazy things, which his dad did not approve of. Like he moved into an old abandoned church, and he fixed it up, and started hanging out with poor people and lepers. And, uh, and this got to be a bit of an issue between Francis and his dad. His dad, like um, Francis, was his retirement plan. Francis was going to take over the family business. Charismatic, natural leader. Can you imagine he might, the heights he might take that business to? And Francis kept saying, no, Dad, i got to preach the gospel to the poor. And he even preached it to animals. He was kind of a cool guy. And so things got more and more tense until one day what happened is Francis's father hauls Francis in front of the town elders basically to say to the elders, look, you got to make my kid stay in the family business and drop this nonsense of following Jesus. And, and Francis stands there and he says, I'm not going to do it. And his dad says to him, he says, son, Everything you have, I gave to you. All of your experiences, your food, your shelter, the very clothes on your back, I gave to you. Now stop this nonsense and come home and get to work. Or else give me back everything I have. And sorry for the visual here, but uh, 
as the story goes, um, Francis stripped naked in front of his dad and the town elders of Assisi. <laughs> and he turned around naked to go follow Jesus. <laughs> I love that story. Right? Now some of us are called into business to follow Jesus. That's not the issue. You understand that. Where is Jesus calling you to follow and what are you doing to do it? And pray with me. Lord God, um, gosh, thanks just for the privilege of being able to be here today and share some of our story and some of our journey. And um, Lord, I, we have a, a, a very unique call. We're very aware of that. But Lord, I believe with all my heart there is some place in this room for every one of us where we're hearing um, your call to follow, to step into something, and maybe we're afraid Maybe we don't want to give up the comfort. We're, we don't know what the unknown will bring, but I pray that you would give us the courage. The courage of Simon and Andrew and James and John. Their ne- life was never the same after they dropped those nets and got out of that boat that day. Give us the courage of St. Francis who uh, walked away from a father who didn't understand that it was more important, Jesus, to follow you than to please our families. And for all of the the ways and places, big and small, where it's awfully easy just to not hear that call. Give us the courage to say yes when you say, come, follow me. Because we know that if we do, it will take us on the adventure of a lifetime. Amen.